Welcome to the Good Fight Radio Show, a program dedicated to bringing you vital and uncompromised truths that you won't hear in the mainstream media, discussing contemporary issues in light of the Bible and how these issues relate to family, culture, and the church. The heart of this show is to glorify Jesus Christ and expose the works of darkness as he is commanded in Ephesians 5.11. Now here's your host, Good Fight Ministries' own Chad Davidson. You know, you mentioned specifically a couple of things that I'd love for you to, I guess you can quickly break them down a little bit, but you talk about these three evidences and that's specifically, or three discoveries, and that is part of the subtitle in the book. And maybe, I guess we could start off and just see where it goes, but let's let's hear some of these, uh, some of these, you yeah, know, absolutely. That that's the, that's the exciting to. part, really. It's yeah, the, amen. the evidence <laughs> and the things that have been discovered. The first is the discovery, well, let's start with the, the last one first, and we'll go backwards. But we've talked a little bit about it already because that was the subject of my book, Signature in the Cell, and the discovery in modern molecular biology that the small, even the smallest and simplest units of life, the living cell, have within them uh, sophisticated information storing molecules and a complex information storage processing and uh, uh, information storage transmission and processing system and such that if you want to explain the origin of life you've got to explain where that information where the information processing system came from and this is the inability to explain that system as a result of spontaneous interaction of simpler non-living chemicals has uh is the reason that there's a complete impasse in origin of life research or studies of chemical abiogenesis. Um, and that's, that's, that was the reason that Ben Stein was able to extract that concession from Richard Dawkins uh, <laughs> several years ago. And that is because really no one does have a, a clue how such a system of information and information processing could have arisen from the interactions of simple non-living chemicals on a prebiotic earth. Um, and what I argue in Signature in the Cell is instead what we know from our experience is that information, especially if we find it in a digital or, or digital or alphabetic form, always arises from an intelligent source. Uh, our colleague out here, our, our, not our colleague, but our, our local hero, Bill Gates, has said that DNA is like a software program, but much more complex than any we've ever devised. Richard Dawkins himself has acknowledged that the DNA is like a machine code. Uh, and has recently tweeted that he's been knocked sideways by his awareness of the uh, complex data processing system that's at work inside this, the, the living cell. And we know from experience that software comes from programmers. And we know more generally that whenever we find information, whether it's in uh, software program or a hieroglyphic inscription or a paragraph in a book or information embedded in a radio signal. Whenever we find information and trace it back to its source, we always come to a mind, not a material process. So the discovery of information at the foundation of life in even the very simplest cells suggests the activity of a designing intelligence in the origin and history of life. And that was the, that was the argument of my book, Signature in the Cell, and I reprised and updated that argument in the new book, uh, A Return of the God Hypothesis. Uh, so that's one of the big discoveries, that we've got digital code inside living organisms uh, directing the construction of the important uh, proteins and protein machinery that all cells need to stay alive. 
Wow. I, I think that's some in, incredible, just in, it's incredible to me when you hear a lot of the evidence is for, because I do believe a lot of times the argument that people will use is say, oh, you know, the God, the return of the God hypothesis is just the return of the God of the gaps, right? And then you're, that's not what you're saying here. No, this is not a God of the gaps argument. A God of the gaps argument is a, a, a colloquial way of describing what logicians call an argument from ignorance. And those sorts of arguments have the following form. Uh, they would have, if say we're trying to explain some effect, call it E, and we find that some cause A is not sufficient to produce the effect E. And then we say, well, therefore it must have been cause B. But we know we offer no positive evidence that cause B is capable of, of producing the effect E. That's an argument from ignorance. That's an argument from gaps in our knowledge about what does actually cause the effect of, of, of interest. The case for intelligent design is not an argument from ignorance. It's an inference to the best explanation where we are attempting to explain a particular effect, namely functional digital information. And we find that any number of proposed materialistic explanations for the origin of that information have failed. We know of no materialistic explanation of any kind that's been able to produce large amounts of functional digital information. But we do know of a cause that does routinely produce such an effect, and that cause is intelligence or mind. Again, programmers produce software. We know that things that have the character of software that are um, what in the book I characterize in a technical way as specified or functional information are always the product of intelligent agents. And therefore, we have positive knowledge of the causal efficacy of the cause that we're proposing as an explanation for the information that needs to be explained. Therefore, it's not an argument from ignorance. It's an argument from our knowledge of the relevant cause and effect uh, patterns and processes that we see at work in the world. It's part of our knowledge base that minds can generate information. And therefore, when we find information at the foundation of life, it's a justified inference to conclude that a mind played a role in its origin. What would you say the second great discovery is uh, concerning, you know, what you would point out here in the yeah, Return we're going of the God down, We're going in reverse order temporally in a way, but... Um, the second one I would, would say is the, the fine-tuning of the universe. It's not only been discovered that um, there's evidence of design in life, but that the universe itself, from its very foundation or for, from, its, from the beginning and very soon after, has been finely tuned in its basic physical parameters to allow for the possibility of life. The universe appears to be a setup job or a kind of, uh, some, some physicists describe it now as the goal, a Goldilocks universe, where the basic parameters of physics, like, for example, the strength of gravitational attraction could be stronger, could be weaker, but instead it falls within a very narrow window or very narrow tolerance where in uh, the production of carbon is possible and many other features that are necessary for life to exist. Uh, the strength of electromagnetic attraction, the other fundamental forces of physics, all fall within very narrow uh, limits that allow life to exist in the universe. The masses of the elementary particles, not too strong, not too, or not, not too heavy, not too, not too light. Uh, the 
force that causes the expansion of the universe outward from the beginning, something called the cosmological constant, exquisitely fine-tuned to one part in 10 to the 90th power is an accepted uh, uh, value by many, by many physicists. Some physicists hold that the fine-tuning is even more exquisite, more improbable. And uh, just to put that number in, in context, there's only 10 to the 80th elementary particles in the entire universe. So finding, uh, getting the, the, uh, fine t the cosmological uh, constant fine-tuning correct would be, by, by chance, would be something, uh, uh, would be equivalent to getting a blindfolded person floating in free space uh, able to pick out one marked elementary particle in our universe, but not just in our universe, but in the person would have to find it by chance in 10 billion universes our size. <laughs> so it's an unbelievably exquisite degree of fine tuning. And then finally, I mean, there are many of these parameters, but another one that's very impressive is the fine tuning of the initial arrangement of matter and energy at the very beginning of the universe. It's called the in initial entropy fine tuning. And that, that fine tuning is almost beyond computation. It's, it's been calculated to be one part in 10 to the 10th power raised again to the 123rd power. It's called a hyper exponential number. So the universe, a life friendly universe is beyond improbable. It's, it's, uh, you, you know, English language doesn't quite have that enough uh, superlative <laughs> adjectives to capture the degree of fine-tuning. And so many physicists, including Sir Fred Hoyle, a great astrophysicist who was initially an atheist, he opposed the Big Bang Theory on the grounds that he thought it supported a theistic view of creation, um, ended up changing his worldview after discovering some of these key fine-tuning parameters himself and later said that a, a common sense interpretation of the, of the data suggests that a super intellect has monkeyed with physics and chemistry in order to make life possible. Um, and uh, I, I like to quip that the, uh, I, I think it's fun the way the monkeys always make it into the origins discussion, even if we're talking about the universe. But uh, <laughs> Hoyle is just one of many physicists who have come to see that, that the fine tuning seems to support the idea of a fine tuner of intelligent design operating from the very beginning of the universe. Uh, now there's, there is a contrary view uh, that's popular today called the multiverse, and we can discuss that as well. But on its face, the fine tuning is suggested to many physicists, intelligent design. I, I will bring out the multiverse question because I, I was out in Israel sharing the gospel on the streets, and this got thrown at me as well as we're talking. Well, there could be a multiverse as if this you know, it just, it's the trump card to everything you just explained. So how would you answer that, Dr. Meyer? Yeah, just checking to make sure I didn't lose the mic. You still hear me okay? Oh yeah, you're good. Yeah, okay, good. good. Yeah, sorry. Uh, yeah, it's the go-to materialistic or atheistic explanation right now. And it has been uh, necessitated by precisely the incredible improbability of this ensemble of fine-tuning parameters, each of which are themselves um, improbably set, but then collectively, uh, the improbability is just, again, almost beyond computation. And what the multiverse proposes as a, a way of explaining the improbability of the conditions that are necessary to allow for life is that there were millions and millions and billions and billions, I call them gabillions of other universes out there. <laughs> so many, in fact, that one of the universes must have, by sheer chance alone, stumbled upon the correct uh, fine-tuning the set of fine-tuning parameters. Now, there, there's 
two very closely related problems with that assertion. The first is that we have an improbable array of fine-tuning parameters in our universe, and it does nothing to explain how that uh, improbable ensemble was set to posit other universes that are causally disconnected from our own. If there are other universes out there, well, great, but if they don't affect anything that or uh, happens in this universe, then they can't be invoked as an explanation for how the fine-tuning parameters were set. They don't, they don't affect anything, including the probability of the fine-tuning parameters. In virtue of that, uh, multiverse explanations, partly in virtue of that, multiverse proponents propose what are called universe-generating mechanisms. And that allows them to portray our universe as the lucky winner of a kind of cosmic lottery. If there's an underlying universe-generating mechanism that's spitting out these different universes with some kind of regularity, according to some underlying rules of or laws of physics, then we can think of our universe as the lucky winner in a great cosmic lottery where we're just kind of pulling the slot machine until you finally get the all, all the lemons to come up across the street and you get all the right parameters. Um, but that's where the real rub comes in because w there, are, there are two different uh, universe generating mechanisms that have been proposed. One to propose one class of fine tuning, another that allegedly explains another class of fine tuning. And it turns out you need them both, which complexifies the explanation quite a bit in the Occam's razor sentence, which is another problem with this. But the deeper problem is that even in theory, those universe generating mechanisms themselves must be finely tuned in order to have uh, to, to produce new universes. And so the, the multiverse hypothesis subtly presupposes prior unexplained fine tuning and brings you right back to where you started. There is no ultimate explanation for fine tuning in the multiverse. It's just pushed back out of view one generation. And yet we do know of a cause that produces fine tuning. What we mean by fine tuning is after all, an improbable arrangement of parameters that work together to achieve some functional end or to, uh, or, or to establish some set of functional, to meet some set of functional requirements. We can think of a French recipe as a finely tuned system. An internal combustion engine is a finely tuned system. Um, software and hardware working together creates a finely tuned system. So when we know, uh, when, we, when, when we use the concept of fine tuning to describe the way an overall system works, invariably the systems we're describing are intelligently designed. <laughs> And so it, if the multiverse doesn't provide an ultimate explanation for fine-tuning, that leaves still only one satisfactory explanation, and that is, again, intelligent design. So I think even if the multiverse is true, then we still have evidence of intelligent design in the universe making life possible. You know, I listened to another interview you had done, and you said you had—I believe you were in a cab— with someone who had left the theistic perspective and moved over to more atheistic perspective, and he was using the multiverse with you. And I think you said you asked him, well, do you believe in the multiverse? He's like, uh, no. <laughs> well, it, yeah, it, there's a conversation I had with Michael Shermer, who's, I, oh, okay. you know, I would consider something of a friend. He's on the other side of the argument, but we've just always had a very cordial discussion about these things. He's the editor of Skeptic Magazine, and uh, I um, did a 
uh, a long interview with him on his podcast and we we had a really good discussion he's a great guy and uh, we did a debate at uh, Westminster College in Fulton Missouri several years ago the the college where uh, Winston Churchill famously gave the, the Iron Curtain speech. I don't think our debate will will be as famous in history, but anyway, <laughs> it was uh, it was a fun evening. And on the way back to the airport, uh, we were talking a bit more candidly, just one on one. And I asked him, "Well, you, you know, uh, how did he?" Well, he always starts his debates with his deconversion from Christianity story and how he became an atheist. And I asked him, "Well, what, what was it about science that?" Let, led to that and, and or what what led you to that 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 change of mind and he said well it was basically science and i said well what about science and he said well you know science all the big things it's discovered and its success uh, you know, dna and the big bang and you know and so i said well wait a minute you know i i accept all those same things we we theists celebrate those discoveries too but and he had already acknowledged in I'm not sure if it was that evening or a previous debate that he didn't have an explanation for the origin of the information that was necessary to produce life. And I said, so DNA is, you know, when we think about its origin, that that's actually not a, that doesn't support atheism. It seems to support intelligent design of some kind. And he said, yeah, but, the, you know, then there's, you know, then there's, the, uh, you know, other things that science has discovered. And I asked him about um, the Big Bang and the origin of the universe and, the fine tuning. And he says, well, you know, but there's the multiverse. And I said, yeah, but do you believe that, Michael? He said, well, nah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> And he's, his magazine, Skeptic Magazine, has recently run a skeptical article about uh, the multiverse hypothesis written by the very prominent uh, astrophysicist from the University of California, San Diego, uh, Brian Keating. So um, I, it's interesting in the response to my book so far, I have had very little pushback on the key arguments. And I think one of the reasons for that is that that the go-to atheistic argument is the multiverse. And when you actually put it under critical examination, I don't think there are a lot of physicists who really want to defend it. So we've left hopefully the best uh, for last here in terms of the discovery that works so well in your book, The Return of the God Hypothesis. Well, right. And I, I went backwards just in our conversation because we had started by talking about, uh, in some ways, the inspiration for this particular book. And I wanted to address the question of the identity of the designing intelligence, understanding that there were at least two, and as I unpack in the book, more than two possible explanations for the source of the intelligence responsible for life. One is the alien designer hypothesis, and the other is a deistic creator and then finally, there's a theistic creator. And um, in addition to the evidence of the fine-tuning, which is present from the very beginning of the universe, we also have evidence for the universe having had a beginning. And uh, there are multiple lines of that evidence. The first kind of main line of evidence came from observational astronomy in the 19-teens and 20s, about 100 years ago, when astronomers began to detect that the light coming from distant nebular objects, later called galaxies, was being stretched out as if those distant galaxies were moving away from us and causing the wavelengths of light to, to stretch. Uh, this is a phenomenon in, uh, in physics known as uh, Doppler shift or redshift, specifically in astrophysics. And the idea is there is if you shine light through a prism, it separates into 
the different colors, red to violet. The red light is the has light that is light that has longer wavelengths. So if the if the, an object in the night sky is receding away from us, the light will look redder than it would otherwise look if the object were stationary in relation to us. And as astrophysicists began to survey the night sky, they discovered that in every quadrant of the night sky, the light coming from these distant galaxies was being red was redshifted. And that suggested that the universe itself, that the, the galaxies were moving away from us. But since they were in every direction moving away, that suggested that the universe was expanding something like a balloon and uh, kind of in a, a, a spherically symmetric expansion. And that in turn raised a really interesting possibility because if you think about an expanding universe in the forward direction of time, but then back extrapolate in your mind's eye as to what the universe would have been like at any successive point in the finite past, you the universe would have been getting smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller until finally the, the matter and energy would have uh, been would have reached a point of convergence past which you couldn't back extrapolate any further. In other words, marking the beginning of the expansion of the universe and arguably the beginning of the universe itself. So that was the, the first big discovery in, in, uh, in astronomy and astrophysics that pointed to a beginning. There were additional discoveries, which I describe in the book, something called the cosmic background radiation and uh, developments in theoretical physics. Einstein's theory of general relativity, his new theory of gravity, which he developed in the 19-teens, um, implied that massive bodies cause the curvature of space and that cause space to curve, suggesting that if gravity were the only force at work in the universe, we should live in something like a black hole. But since we don't, there must be a contrary force pushing outward, causing the creation of space between massive bodies, which we see all around us. We have empty space around the Earth and our solar system. So there must be an outward pushing force. That implied a dynamic universe from uh, where the universe is expanding outward from a beginning. Einstein didn't like that initially, attempted to gerrymander his own e equations to kind of uh, conceal that implication, and then later realized that that was a huge mistake and came to accept that the universe did, in fact, have a beginning. So uh, multiple lines of evidence is a fascinating story, the stories of discovery, because this, this is a debate that goes back to the ancient Greeks. Is the universe eternal and self-existent, or did it have a beginning, and was it the product of an external creator? And modern physics, astrophysics, and astronomy, I think, are pointing toward the latter, the latter answer. And that's, so that's the third big discovery. And then to put the whole thing in context, uh, if after my first two books, I made the case that there's evidence of design in the information-bearing properties of living systems, but didn't attempt to identify whether the designer was an imminent intelligence within the cosmos or a transcendent intelligence, but when you bring in the evidence from physics and cosmology, which was part of the new, some of the new aspects that I addressed in the book, it's clear that no alien intelligence within the cosmos could be responsible for the fine tuning of the universe that was present from very soon after its beginning, which in turn made its own life and, and, and uh, supposed evolution possible. In other, in other words, if the alien intelligence has to evolve from an, a simple cell on some other, in some other planetary system in some other star system, uh, that would all happen long after the beginning of the universe and long after the fine-tuning of the universe was set. So no alien intelligence could be responsible for the fine-tuning of the very fabric of the universe as a whole that was set long before it came on the scene. 
And in addition, no alien intelligence could be responsible for the origin of the universe itself. That would require a transcendent cause and the fine tuning would require a transcendent intelligence. And so that suggests, those two pieces of evidence suggest an intelligence which is not imminent within the cosmos, but rather transcends it and transcends the cosmos as a whole. In other words, God. Then the other question is, well, is the God uh, a deistic style creator that only sets things in motion at the beginning, but doesn't act afterwards? Or is that God more of a theistic creator who is transcendent and, and intelligent and therefore personal, but does that God also act in the creation long after the beginning? And I think the evidence of we, that we have of design and biology suggests that the, the need for that type of creator in order to explain the whole range of evidence that we have, that, and that's the argument of the book, is that a theistic conception of God best explains the three key pieces of evidence we have about biological and cosmological origins, better than deism, better than the space alien hypothesis, and certainly better than materialism, which explains none of these three evidences adequately at all. I think that is absolutely amazing. And I only have about four minutes left with you, but I want to try to combine the last two questions that I wanted to ask you, especially after hearing all of that evidence. And we've been sitting here talking for almost an hour regarding the return of the God hypothesis. And what we've talked about is literally scratching the surface as to how much information he has in this book. So I want you guys to please check that out because it is amazing. And I think it kind of is the reason why I want to ask this question as kind of a finish and follow up to what we've been talking about the last hour, just under an hour. And that is how accepted today in the scientific field is neo-Darwinianism. And do you believe in the scientific field, that there will be a major push away from atheism and over to the theistic side? Well, there is certainly already a major push away from the acceptance of neo-Darwinism. There was in 2016 a conference held at the Royal Society in London, uh, the Royal Society being the world's oldest and arguably most august scientific body. And the the conference was convened by a number of leading evolutionary biologists who are dissatisfied with neo-Darwinism and who doubt that its main mechanism of creativity, namely the mutation selection mechanism, really has genuine creative power. It does a nice job of explaining small-scale variations, um, but a very poor job of explaining large morphological innovations, innovations in form that arise abruptly in the history of life. And the opening talk of that conference by leading Austrian uh, evolutionary biologist Gerd Müller enumerated what he called the explanatory deficits of neo-Darwinism. And the, the, the chief deficits pertain to the lack of creative power associated with the mutation selection mechanism. And so the purpose of the conference was to look for new evolutionary mechanisms that could either replace or supplement the, the, uh, the limited creative power of the main evolutionary mechanism. Uh, after the conference, one of the conveners of the conference described the outcome of the conference uh, or characterized the outcome for its, what she called, lack of momentousness. Essentially, people did a great job of characterizing the problems with standard evolutionary theory, but really did not have anything world-shaking uh, or, uh, or of great significance or consequence to offer to solve the problems that they had convened the conference to address. Now, I address all of these issues in my second book, uh, Darwin's Doubt. 
and it's about uh, the the subtitle of that book is the origin of animal life and uh, the the uh, abrupt origin of animal life um, and the case for intelligent design, and it, it's looking at the problem of the origin of new biological form and what's required to produce it. In particular, the informational requirements required to, uh, for for new life. We know in our computer world, if you want to give your computer a new function you have to give it new code, you have to give it new information. Same thing turns out to be true in the history of life. To explain the origin of new forms of life, there has to be an explanation for the origin of the information that allows those life forms to come into existence. And that's that's the key problem. And it hasn't been solved by modern neo-Darwinism or other post-neo-Darwinian theories of evolution. But I, I will tell you, in the in the specialized field of evolutionary biology, there is increasing recognition that the neo-Darwinian approach is not adequate and something new is needed. Wow. Well, praise the Lord. I'm so excited. And I thank you guys so much. First, I have obviously have to thank Dr. Stephen Meyer for coming on and, and sharing with us so much from your book and also just from your own experiences as well and, and sharing with our audience all these different evidences and, and great reasons to believe in a creator that created this universe ex nihilo out of nothing. And so I wanted to thank you so much for joining us on the Good Fight Radio Show, Dr. Meyer. And I want to thank you guys for coming along and watching this with us. And I want to encourage you, we'll have a link in the description to not only this book, but also the two other books that he mentioned that he also wrote, as well as Expelled, No Intelligence Allowed. So thank you, Dr. Meyer, and thank you guys for listening. God bless. And this has been Chad Davidson on the Good Fight Radio Show. You've been listening to the Good Fight Radio Show brought to you by Good Fight Ministries. If you're blessed by this show and would like to partner with us, please consider visiting our Patreon page at patreon.com goodfight. Or you can write to us at P.O. Box 2202, Simi Valley, California, 93062. Or call us toll free at 1-866-JC-TRUTH. That's 1-866-528-7884. We hope you'll tune in next time on the Good Fight Radio Show.